confrontation. And let's just pray. Father, we ask you that you would give us clarity, teach us spiritually in the inner man, that we would walk away with not just information, but life-changing truth. In Jesus' precious name, we pray these things. Amen. James chapter 1, we're going to read verses 2 through 15. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let that patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, let the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower fails and its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. Blessed, in verse 12, is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he, tempt him, does, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when the desire has conceived, it gives forth, it brings birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Um, I want to just say four things this morning, just kind of on a practical note. And also maybe this would speak to some of our graduates that are um, facing a new era in their life change. And I want to just talk about, number one, what is temptation? Um... What is the context of that? Number two, the nature of temptation and sin. Um, number three, what is the cause of sin in a person's life? And what is the way out? These four things. Number one, um, what is temptation or what's a trial? Number two, the nature, and the, the nature of temptation and sin. The cause of sin, number three. And number four, the way out. Uh, verses two through eight, when trials are mentioned here, it's a word in the Greek that could be translated test. It's a test that in verses 2 through 12 can transition into a temptation in verse 13 of this chapter. And when we look at this word test or when we look at this word trial, it's the same word in the Greek in verse 2 and in verse 12 as the word tempt in verse 13, and that is perasmos in the Greek. That means an attempt to prove the nature or the character of something. Now, when you hear about something going on trial, like a kind of medication or some kind of uh, product that's been released into the, into the public market um, for test trials, beta trials, this is really to see, for example, in the world of software, which is a bit my background, software is released into the public as a beta. And a lot of people are afraid of that word because beta means, oh no, this could blow my computer up. Beta means it's just been released and to the best knowledge of the, of the developers, it's been released into the public to see if it can bear the weight of public demand and public interest. And so when something is released 
to be tested, the, the ideal um, end game is to find out, can this stand the test? What is this, does this have the stamina and does this have the veracity to make it? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says that God tests us, but he never tempts us. God does not tempt. He may release it, he may give us a test, he may give us a trial, and we're gonna talk about what that purpose is, but the trial means that God gives us something with the end, with the goal in our life to promote you, to bless you, and to bring you into a place of stability and maturity. This is why God sends tests our way. Every trial and every test is given to us, and I wanna repeat this, to prove the veracity and the faithfulness of God. And that's the context of the word trial here. Number two, what is the nature and the temptation? What is the nature of temptation and sin? And we can read these in verses nine through 12. And when we look at a test or a trial, really every change in your life is going to be a trial. Every change in your life, when something changes, when you come across, um, when you come across good health or you have prosperity in a certain area of your life, or maybe there's a change in your relationships, maybe there's a change of where you live, Maybe there's a change in um, your economic status or maybe whatever change, or when there's a new child, right, in the family, that's a change and it's also a trial. And whenever there's change in our life, that's a trial, it's a test, and that test is not gonna leave us the same ever. Whatever change happens in our life, we are going to be different. You know, when we adopted Caleb, we thought, hey, we're gonna still, you know, life's gonna be the same, but we were changed. And he changed us, and we changed him, and the Lord changed us all. And so when a trial comes into your life, opportunity, or when change happens, it never leaves us the same. We are going to be changed. And that change could be in a good direction where we grow in grace, where we grow in maturity, we grow in strength, we grow in confidence, we grow in understanding that God is with us, we grow in our strength, in our character, or... That, tr that test can bring us to a place that if we don't respond to it properly with God's mind and God's wisdom, it could actually bring us to a place of destruction. It could be, bring us to a place where it is not a benefit in my life. Bad things can happen to somebody who knows God, who knows grace, that knows the mind and the wisdom of God, and that can make a person so much better and just make a person so much more strengthened and settled in his life. That's what, that's what Peter said, the apostle Peter said in his first epistle, that these things work patience in our life. And so every change in our life really is a test. Um, every trial and every test is a potential temptation. And for example, adversity, prosperity, difficulty, success. And the way we handle these trials either leads to growth, a blessing, or in mishandling these trials, leads us to sin and death. So any change, any, um, any change in your situation will make us either grow, and I'm repeating this, it's gonna either make us grow or it's gonna put us in a place where we're defeated temporarily. Number three, what's the cause of sin? And I don't wanna, I just wanna hit this for a couple seconds here or a couple minutes. Verses 13 through 15 talks about what is the cause of sin. It is, it is, um, it is not necessarily what someone would describe as a behavioral issue, but it's an issue of desire. And I wanna explain what that meant. 
what that means. Because it's important for us not to confuse the cause of our sin for the occasion of our sin. What do we mean by that? Um, we sin because we want to sin. Um, and what that means is that we are free volitional people, that we have a decision maker. And that free will, when we make a decision, we make that decision because we're making a decision for the th always based on the thing that we most desire and not because of the test is being too hard. Sometimes someone may say, well, God tempted me. God put me in this situation. God put me in a place where I feel like I can't resist this temptation and so I'm failing, therefore it's God's fault that he sent that test into my life or God allowed this circumstance where I'm failing. A student may say, well, the algebra test was too hard. The teacher was, was too cruel. The teacher wasn't taking me into consideration when that test was given. We can't, bl we can't blame the, the, the test never. And we cannot, um, <laughs> I've got some competition to these speakers. We can't blame the test itself, but it really is a test of what is inside of us and, it's gonna, and it comes out. These are very good, tests are very good things in a person's life. For example, if we're in a relationship with someone, we want to ask the Lord to test them, to show us what's in their soul. Why? So that we can know the person. And I think that when, when, we, um, are, when we are engaging in something new in our life, when there's change in our life, the Lord wants to show us um, through a trial how we can trust. And in a in a, in a relationship or in a friendship, I think what is very valuable is when a person has years in their life, when there's a, when there's a, a history of experience and just even like maybe falling down but getting up and, and going forward. Because trials always bring out what's inside of a person. It also brings out what's inside of a church. It brings out what's inside of a marriage. It brings out what's inside of a relationship. It brings, in, out, it brings out what is, is our are the way we relate to our business or the way we relate to um, things in our life. Sometimes um, people that have been victimized in their life, um, what will often happen is that there'll be insecurity that will come in. And really, in a sense, all of us have been victimized by this world system, by the system that we live in, by the world that we live in. There have been things that have happened to us that are not our fault. And we can sense that, we're being victim, that we've been victimized. And when a person has been victimized, this insecurity comes in and it begins to kill their self-esteem. Now I know this is a lot, I'm teaching here this morning, not necessarily preaching, but I'm doing some teaching. So just follow me, okay? When a person enters, when a person has a trial happen to them in their life, something happens where they've been victimized, they can be very easily impacted with their self-esteem. They may not understand or they may not believe who they are. They may not be able to grapple with their self-value. And there's this vacuum. There is this sense of just something that's dilapidated inside of our soul, which is our self-image. And what the devil wants to do in Proverbs chapter 18 is to attack and to destroy through words and through actions. And for these things to go deep down into somebody's emotions and really destroy them on the inside. Because if he can destroy somebody on the inside, 
then he can come out with a, with a plan B and say, hey, look, you're destroyed. I destroyed you, but I'm not going to say that. But here's, a, here's, a, here's something that I'm offering to you that's going to make you feel better. It's going to make you feel like you're worthy. It's, like, it's going to make you feel valuable. And here is this compromise. And what happens is there's this insecurity that, that people can have. And they begin to live for this sense of affirmation. This sense of I need to be recognized or I need to be validated. And because insecurity begins to come in and begins to uh, do damage in our soul. Sin begins when something else other than God becomes the author of our self-esteem. And what happens is like if I'm in a place of neediness. And we are. Sometimes there's moments where we're going to play. Our wives know it or our husbands know it, you know. They know or our family members know when we're in a place of neediness. And if we don't discern it, if we don't discern it in other people, then we may not know how to properly address the situation. A trial comes. A test comes in. Something that God allows in your life to say, you know what? And we used to call them, it was the way it was taught, our, our, our pastor back home called it momentum tests. These were tests that God brought into your life to increase your momentum with God, to increase your authority in the kingdom of God, to walk in authority and understanding your authority over the atmosphere, over the devil and over the flesh. These trials are brought into your life with the, with the purpose of blessing you and I. And what could happen for a brief time is that we could feel insecure. We could feel like I'm needy. I don't have what I need. How many have ever felt that way, right? We feel like, Lord, you have left me. I have done all of this like Elijah. I have done all of this. I have not denied your name. And here I am in the middle of a wilderness and I'm lost. And so this insecurity can come into a person's life. It could come into a, it could come into a teenager. A young teenager could experience this in a way where, where they feel insecure, where they feel like they have to draw their self-esteem they, have to, they feel like they have to draw their, their self-worth from people around them, from the things that they have. Um, maybe a young man who doesn't understand how his father loves him could continually live in the sense, I've got to please my father who is never happy with me. And we could bring that into relationships and we could start deriving our sense of self-worth as a man. And I'm a man and I can tell you this, is ha- this happens. Men, we, a lot of times we just derive from the things that we're doing, our sense of self-worth. Because somewhere down the line, and we've buried it, and we don't think about it, and we don't want to accept it, but we're doing things, what we're doing today, we're being driven by men sometimes because our dad wasn't happy with us. And, or maybe that there was someone in our life that really meant a lot to us, and we could never seem to please that person. So this kind of becomes buried, and becomes something that's in our life where it just drives us, and it pushes us, where we are continually feeling that I'm not enough, and this drives us, and this, what, is, what this produces is a fatal attraction, okay? The fatal attraction. And that means that I'm attracted to something that appears very beautiful and very powerful, and it's something that's going to give me this sense of what I need, right? You know, when, when there's unfaithfulness in marriage, it happens because one of the members, one of the, one of the spouses are saying, well, that person, that other person, it's not that my spouse was a bad spouse or I'm not satisfied, 
but it's this other person that made me feel like such a man or this other person made me feel like such a woman, like a wife could say that. And this can happen because when insecurity comes into our lives and we don't address it from divine perspective, from the promises of God, that God is faithful, then we're going to start desiring something. And this is the key I wanna get into is desire. We start desiring something that's really a fatal attraction. And this is what the whole book of Proverbs is about. The whole book of Proverbs is about David, David speaking to his son Solomon. And there are some commentators that believe that the, the writings of, of Proverbs are really the notes that, Dave, that Solomon took from his father's Bible classes that he would teach in his family, that David taught his kids. He taught, he taught Solomon scripture and doctrine. He, he taught him who God was and, and all, of the, all of the issues of life. And so this is what the whole story of the book of Proverbs is about. So there's a way out. When we feel victimized, we have this sense of insecurity. And when we have this sense of insecurity, if we don't define it, it begins to be a drive in our life to we want something, we, we become attracted to something, something that is fatal. And because our ego needs to be stroked. Here's an example, right? Okay, and I've experienced this. I remember I had a job in Bible school and there was a, there was a, um, there was a boss there and he wanted us to lie. He wanted us to, we were, it was a construction company, we were doing something and he wanted us to not tell the truth. And I remember me and another guy, Jeff Phelps, we were there working. And I remember like just, we both needed this work. You know, we were in Bible school and we're pretty broke. It's like, you know, pretty broke college students. And this was a job, it was like within walking distance from where we lived. And I remember he had asked us to lie. And I remember being faced with this a sense of insecurity, like if we don't lie, we're gonna lose our job. There was a sense of insecurity. It was a test. And I remember like praying and this job came and I thought, wow, this is the Lord's will. And then this happens. The boss tells us, hey, I want you guys to say it this way on the phone. And we're like, but that's not true. And he said, well, this is what's gonna get sales. So we had to make a decision. And I remember facing that sense of insecurity with a question, am I gonna do, if I'm gonna, am I gonna tell the truth and honor God, or am I going to um, live in my desire for my job more than for God? And I remember, like, like it was a question, do I, do I desire keeping my job more than my desire for truth? And I remember we just, and it was good, because I had a friend there, and we just both made the decision to leave the job. And God blessed us with something better. And that's what happens, is that it really comes down to this, is that, that the, the, the concept of sin really lies in the sense, in this concept of desire. That we, like we had a choice. Do I desire to keep my job so I can have, so I can have security, so I don't have to live in insecurity, or do I want to live in truthfulness and live by faith? Because whenever you live in truthfulness, it's gonna, it's gonna require you to take steps of faith, okay? There's moments I remember in my wife's, my life, where we just had to make decisions by faith because it was the right thing to do. And if we didn't make those decisions by faith, I would have felt like we've been, we've been living in some kind of a compromise. And so there's this frequent concept in the Bible and it's described here in verses 13 through 15. Um, and the essence of, of sin is really over desire. It's, it's, transfer, it's translated in the English here as lust, but it's this Greek word epithumia. 
And it's often translated as evil desire or, or lust or, or, or wanting something. But epithemia is really a, a, a good way to look at that word or translate that word is over-desire. To desire something way over. It's like to want something so badly that it takes us across boundaries into places where we can be destroyed. It's been said this way, that, that sin is not wanting bad things. It's just wanting things too badly. There are things that God wants to give you and I, like maybe marriage or maybe uh, something that we are really believing God for, maybe kids or, or whatever it is in your life that you truly desire. And these are, these are things that maybe God has in his plan to give to you, but lust is wanting something that is outside of God's timing. It may not be something that God it may, be, it may not be something that God doesn't want you to have. It may be, what it is, is just wanting something so badly that I'm willing to get, step off the road of faith, step off the road of truthfulness, to step off the road of making care, decisions by, in, in, a, in a godly character by faith, and then I enter into the fields of the fatherless, as it talks about in the book of Proverbs. Lust is something where where there's desire, and there's so much desire, it's so, much, it's so powerful that I so want it then I'm gonna go after it and it's gonna pull me out of the road to God's plan of peace and God's plan of blessing. And so what happens when we get pulled up? Well, these verses here, 13 through 15, tell us that we are dragged away by their own, we are dragged away by our own lust. We are seduced by it. And that's why what we desire is really the key. Like, I think in behavioral Christianity or religious, religious religion or churches or, or Christian groups that really focus on behavioral acceptance or behavior or this is the way you got to act or this is the way you got to be or this is the way you got to think. And we were talking about this in the car on the way up is that in these kind of circles of people, behavior is more important than transformation. Okay, are you following me guys? Like you follow me? Uh, um. <laughs> I think that sometimes people, thank you. I think that sometimes what we find in, in some religious Christian groups, it's like the activity and behavior is more important than being transformed on the inside. I think in a church that really knows grace and that walks in grace, that walks in faith, that walks in the freedom and the liberty of the Holy Spirit, you're going to find a lot of different kinds of people in that room. Amen? You're not going to find just one kind of person or one kind of social structure or one kind of economic slice of society. You're going to find really a wide range of people. You're going to find people of low estate and people of high estate. You're going to find people that have amazing personalities. You're going to find people that really are dysfunctional. You're going to find people that are, that are just doing great with God and just killing it in the kingdom. And then there's people that getting to church on Sunday morning before, you know, like on time is like the goal of their life, you know? And when we find these kinds of, we see a wide range of people that, in this, that are in this sphere of grace because Christianity is not about behavioral modification. Christianity, Jesus never, and this is what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees had it down pat. The Pharisees had it. They're like, they, the Pharisees understood, and we've said this before, but in ages before, like in, in uh, hundreds of years earlier, they, uh, the Jews began to understand that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to create this community of people. And this community of people are going to be so elite and so amazing and so privileged that they're going to like eventually rule the world. They're going to have spiritual authority. And this is the community that this Messiah is going to create when he comes. And so this is in the Pharisees' minds. 
And so they are already starting to reform themselves. They're already starting to create and conform themselves to the Mosaic law. Like, okay, if we can, if we can fully 100% obey the Ten Commandments, then Jesus will pick us when he, and the Messiah will pick us when, when he comes. And that was Phariseeism. And that led them into a lot of judgmental attitudes. That led them into a lot of separate, uh, separatist thinking. Jesus comes, Luke 15, verse 1. Who is this very privileged group of people? Who is this very elite group of individuals that Jesus is calling to be disciples and to be apostles? Who are these people? Fishermen, <laughs> tax collectors. <laughs> Whoops, wait a minute. <laughs> you know? Two brothers that are just arguing all the time, James and John. Dysfunctional people. I mean, like, you know, what's the problem? I mean, and the Pharisees see this and they're like, oh no, we have missed the boat. Like we are, we are just not like, and they're, and they're trying to, they're starting to understand that as multitudes begin to follow Jesus, these are former prostitutes, these are former lepers, these are like people that have been cast out of society, these are people that didn't make it in, religi- in, in religion, these are people that have been cast out of the synagogue, these are people that have been, that, have been, um, that are blind, that are, that are sick, that are people that, that are, just have a lot of problems, Jesus comes in, and he heals them by his grace. He heals them by his love. He heals them because he wants to heal them. Because God is God and God wants to do these things in people's lives. And the Pharisees are saying, we, cr- we climbed the wrong ladder for all of these centuries. And they discovered that their ladder is leaning against the wrong building. And the right ladder is this ladder of grace over here where it's all a gift. And I think that if we don't understand that trials come into our life, not to not to test, like, it tests us, and I think that there's only one, there's only one, one true thing, there's one thing that's always going to be evident in our life when trials come, and that is, we try, we fail, and God is redemptive, and he redeems the situation. That is how it works. And there's these, there are these dispensations in the Bible, seven of them, and every dispensation shows God gives a command, then man tries, he fails, and then God has, God comes in and redeems the whole situation, and these people are set up and they're put in a place of favor and grace because of the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And so death comes, by, death comes after sin. And, and here's the thing what happens is that, is that if we're chasing these concepts of what we think is going to make us happy or what the world is telling us, look like this, do this, have this, and you're going to be a happy person. If we're teaching our, our little kids if we're teaching our kids that this is the way to happiness, that the goal of your life is to be happy, that the goal of your life is to be this or to be that, we're setting a standard for them that we're setting them up to, to fail because there's only one thing that we should be teaching our kids and that is that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life and that by him comes happiness. That by him in Psalm chapter 1, I think Psalm chapter 1 is the key to success. It's the key to happiness. It's the key to the blessed life. And read it sometime. Blessed is the man that does not, and, and you can read it, doesn't walk in the way of sinners, does not. And there's this very interesting psalm there. And so what happens is, that, for example, if, if, I am, if I'm living in insecurity and I feel like, okay, I've got to succeed, I've got to excel in this area of my life, so that I don't have to feel insecure. So I, exceed, I succeed and I, I'm doing excellent in this area of my life. For example, maybe my career. 
Maybe my career. Maybe I'm like really, I'm really going after my career because I don't want to feel like a deadbeat person, right? When we lived in Philadelphia, in Northeast Philadelphia, it was a very, it was kind of an urban place. And there was a bank there, there was a credit union. And it was so interesting. They had like this digital board and it said deadbeats. <laughs> and it listed the names of all the people that defaulted on their on all of their loans, just their names. I was like, can you, I can't even believe this. Like, and that's what we fear. We fear that like somebody's gonna discover that, you know, that I could be a deadbeat. And so we start running after these things and we start running after these things because these gods, these idols are gonna love us and they're gonna make us feel good. They're gonna stroke our ego. And we get there and our lover gods are great there. And, but when, because we live in a world of the second law of thermodynamics, you leave something alone by itself, it's not, gonna, it's not going to grow, it's going to die. And that's the way our life is, that we chase these things and, and we can't maintain this level of, of, without God, we can't maintain this. And what happens is we're going after this stuff and then we get it and then it starts to die. It starts to rot. And then what happens? Death, right? Here's an example. My career, I'm chasing after my career. I'm talking about, because this is the Moore family back in New England. Go after the career, make all the money, do it, right? Succeed. And what happens? You, do, you kill your body, because your body can't keep up with the work schedule. You kill your body. How about like in a relationship, you know? You go after someone else, and then you kill your marriage. Or you... We, we, could put this in any, we can put this in any situation where we're killing ourselves, we're, kill, we're living in death because we're not understanding that these lover gods, these gods that claim to love us, guess what happens? The prodigal son, he leaves. Where's all of her, his friends and all of his family, his friends and, and, and everybody that was with him? He is alone and he's, in, he, he's, eating, from, he's eating from a pig pen. That's what sin does in our life. These lover gods when we find out I've got cancer, I've got cancer. I used, to be, I used to be like this amazing person. I could do all this, I could do all that, or maybe I have some debilitating disease. And what happens, all the lover gods leave, right? These gods can't counsel you. These, these idols can't counsel us. They can't give us life, they're dead. And what happens, we find ourselves dying. We find ourselves in a place of death because these lover gods, these idols, that the world chases after generation after generation after generation and none of them can help. Why? Because there's only one God. One God that was stripped for you. One God that was laid down his life for you. There's one God who poured out all of his blood for you. And that is our true God, that is Jesus Christ. This is the God who shows up in the darkest night of your life, amen? Amen, amen right? We can say amen. Like, it's like this God, Jesus will show up in your loneliness moment on the edge of suicide or the edge of a very terrible decision. And, and Jesus shows up and he's speaking to you. And how is he speaking to you? He's not saying this, you idiot, what are you, what are you, what are you doing? He's like, that's not how he speaks to us. That's how the world would speak to us. But Jesus comes in and says, stop. And he starts talking to us with dignity. And I wanna just say something about dignity here. Dignity and passion. This is the way out, number four. I'm going to close with this. Is that when Jesus came and spoke to people that were in a place of just great temptation or great defeat, he always began the conversation with dignity. And this is just a new theme that I've been thinking about in the last couple of years is 
John 8, John 20. You know, John 8, here's the woman that's caught in adultery. Jesus talks to her in dignity. He's speaking to her in dignity. He's on his knee. He's talking to them on her level. Where are your accusers? Right? He casts them all out because God is a God of dignity and he doesn't deal with us in condemnation. He speaks to us in dignity. Here's John, here's, here's John verse, the chapter 20. Peter has just failed Christ three times and he's just crushed. He's a wreck, right? Jesus meets him, makes him breakfast and he said, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. This is the way God deals with us. And this is what, this is how, this is the way out. Because you know something, we are not animals. Animals can't be, animals have no dignity. They have no, they have no moral sense. They have no spirit in them where there's a moment in their life where they say, you know what, stop, think, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. What does God say? An animal, an animal is just gonna be obedient to its own impulses, to its own urges, to its own desires. We are not animals. And when someone says this, or when you say this to yourself, I have no choice. I'm being pushed in this situation. I've got to do what I feel. This isn't, we are not animals. We, we are people that have a spirit. And this spirit is from the spirit of God. And this spirit is the candle of the Lord, it says in the book of Proverbs. And this spirit is that part of us that's quickened by the Holy Spirit in a moment of, of temptation and confusion and difficulty. And we take this moment and we have a moment of, of dignity. And I was thinking late last night, just walking my dog, just walking around our neighborhood thinking about this dignity. And this is so amazing. This is so awesome. Like Jesus, the way God, and I hope the Holy Spirit can reveal this to you, the dignity of God when he deals with us. You ever have someone deal with you when you've just blown it and they treat you with dignity? Have you ever had that happen? Honor, respect, it's amazing. And that's how God deals with us. When we're in a moment of temptation, we don't have to obey the sinful lusts in, in Galatians chapter five and, and all of, in Romans chapter eight and these, and these chapters about this. But that moment, let Lord speak to you. Get on your knees, get on your face before the Lord and just let God speak to you about your dignity, that you have dignity. And that moment of dignity, that moment of thinking with God about who we are in Christ, that somebody poured out their blood for us, that someone did everything for us though we did not deserve it and we never said thank you and Jesus did it for us. He did it because he sees in us, he loves us, he has a plan for us. He says, I, my thoughts towards you are not evil thoughts. God's not thinking in heaven evil stuff about you but my thoughts are good that you may have an expected end. There's a trajectory in your life. God has a vision for your life. And if you're a young person here graduating, I wanna tell you this, that the word graduation in the English language does not mean to finish, it means actually to start. To graduate means that you have qualified to a point where you can get up to the starting line and you're ready to run. Graduation, I think when I graduated from high school, I thought, okay, that's it, you know? Graduation means that I'm beginning something brand new with God and God has a plan for your life. And I wanna just finish with this, what's the way out? Well, let's work backwards. Two words, dignity, and I just said that, and number two, passion, desire. I remember my youth leader said when I was um, a teenager, back when there was dinosaurs on the earth and nobody drove cars, and he said to me, he said, you know, we were talking, because he was the kind of guy that you could just tell everything that was, you could tell him what was going on in your life and he could encourage you. And I remember telling him, he was up in Maine, 
South Burke, Maine. You know, I was living in Maine at the time. And he was an interesting guy. He was just a guy that just didn't, he didn't, he didn't look cool. He didn't talk cool. There was just nothing about him that was really cool at all. And I just remember we'd sit down and we'd sometimes talk. And he said to me, he said, you know, the imagination is something very, very powerful. Very powerful. And the imagination can just get so much speed and momentum inside of our head, inside of our soul, that it can just take us away. It can just drag us off into, into bad decisions. He said the key is not saying just no all the time. And that's what the world says. That's what religion says. Just say no. Just say no. Well, if, we, that, was, if that was the philosophy of Christianity, then that would we be all losing. The point here is that that is our, is our imagination. And this is what he shared with me. He said, he said, if you could imagine with God victory, if you could just picture it, if you could use the very thing in your life, your imagination that's pulling you down, that's taking you off the road, that's killing you, that's, that you're just imagining and just you're thinking about failure, you're thinking about this, or you're thinking about what you really want, take that imagination and just start imagining with God your life with God. Read the book of Revelation. It's an amazing book. Lots of imagination there. And he said, if you could learn how to think in your imagination with God about things, then this will, this will re renew, um, this will bring in new passion. And if we can outsmart our imagination by just thinking with God about the promises that like eye has not seen nor ear has heard, nor, nor has it entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for them that, that respond to his first love. Okay, it says that, that love him, but really, it really means that we're responding to his first love to us. And if we can imagine our life with God, a calling, a future, a trajectory, that God is with us, that he has a plan, if we can do that, I truly believe that we can be quickened and this lower, this lower gravitational pull is overcome by a new pull, by a new like a, with a new quickening into the way God thinks about our lives. And this is Ephesians chapter 5, 25 through 27, that Jesus is the perfect lover. Thomas Chalmers said this, and I don't necessarily agree with all of his theology, but it was kind of interesting he said this. He said, he said that to break the grip of something very attractive in our life, our soul has to be shown something that is much more beautiful and much more enrapturous, and that's Jesus Christ. Look at Jesus Christ, look at him, look at him in the Gospels, read your Bible, think about what's happening, look what Jesus is doing with people, with broken people like us, and when we see that, there's something about the life of Christ that enraptures us, that changes us, that grabs a hold of us and pulls us out of the, the, the jaws of death. There was a guy here Wednesday night, his name is Israel, he's a Bible college student, in our church, I mean, in our Bible school in Baltimore, and he was—he's from the—he's from the Ivory Coast, and it's a Muslim population there. And he just shared with us a beautiful testimony that he began to think about Jesus. He began to think about who he was, and there was nobody really there that was telling him, telling him about who Christ was. 
And then one day he had this dream where Christ comes to him and speaks to him. And it's evident to Israel, this guy's name Israel, that this is Jesus Christ. And he said that moment when I began to see Christ, he began to be hungry for something new. I had a new attraction that was no longer a fatal attraction in my life. I had this new attraction in my life to know Christ and the hunger after him. And I began to search and to talk with people. And some of my business partners were pastors in Greater Grace in the Ivory Coast. And they told me about a Bible school in French because he's a French speaker in Paris. So he started taking classes online um, in Paris. And he began to grow in who he is in Christ. And now he's, now he's in Baltimore and he's, he's taking Bible school classes there. And he's really he's just growing. And he said, my whole family has rejected me. They've, like they don't want to talk with me. And like my life is in danger. And he says that even my dearest family members won't talk to me. And so he was here in Houston at a conference and a business, of, business appointment. And he says, I think I'll be moving to Houston uh, next year for, for business and we may see more of him. What can happen when Jesus appears to Peter, um, um, Paul on the road to Damascus? When we get a glimpse of who Jesus Christ is, when we can see him in the Bible, when he, when he opens our eyes and we can see who he is, that he's, he's flesh and blood of God, he's the Logos, he is our friend, our savior, and when we can see that he's laid down our life, there's, there's that fatal attraction no longer exists because there's something healthy in my life. And it's the love of Christ. I could talk all day about this, and, and I want to just finish it up with this, is that um, if you haven't done this, give your life to Christ. Just do it. You know, I mean, there's probably a lot of religious people in this room, and, and, the, and we live in a religious state. We live in a religious uh, country. But it's possible that we could sit and we can enjoy all of these messages and we can enjoy all of this. Enjoy really the great food and the people that are here. That's very easy to do. But I think if you have not given your life to Christ, it's, it's, it's something Yadik said. I don't, mean to, I don't want to embarrass you, Yadik, but I, I like what he said when I first met him. He started coming to our church. He goes, I needed authority in my life that was bigger than me in my family. I needed authority in my family that's bigger than me. Isn't that a great statement? It's like, that's like God in your life. Let's do that this morning. Let's bow our heads. Jesus.